0: New Comics Day, Wednesday, May 16th, 2018, and you're listening to God and, the show that lost half its name when Thanos gained control of the Infinity Gauntlet. On today's show, we take on Avengers Infinity War. We'll talk about some of the deeper themes about life and death that are hidden in the subtext of Marvel's latest blockbuster film. Plus, we'll have our recommendation, this or that, and a whole lot more. I'm your host, Deacon Jonathan Michikin. I am chaplain at St. John the 23rd College Preparatory in Katy, Texas. On the line with me is Father Matt Stromberg. Father Matt, where are you?
1: I'm the rector of St. George's Episcopal Church in Schenectady, New
0: York. Okay, and uh, Father Kyle Tomlin was not able to be with us today, unfortunately. He is in the Himalayas training an elite squad of gerbil ninjas. There's not cell phone service there, so he sends his regrets via carrier pigeon. And we wish him the best of luck getting home. Uh, Okay, so we're going to do things slightly different on this episode. Uh, Normally, we don't uh, introduce the guests quite so early. And yes, I did say guests. Plural, But we're going to go right ahead and invite our guests into the conversation already. Alexi Sargent is a regular guest. He's a writer, theater maker, and game designer. He's written for First Things, The Weekly Standard, National Review, and Alatea, among others. And Leah Labresco Sargent is also a writer. Her work covers a broad range of topics, including religion, statistics, and theater she has written for first things america and commonweal among others she is also a blogger and the author of arriving at amen seven catholic prayers that even i can offer and her new book will be coming out this summer it's called building the benedict option a guide to gathering two or three together in his name leah and alexi welcome back to god in comics
1: it's great to be
2: back
0: there's a lot of exciting milestones having you all back. So, this is our first married couple on the show together. Uh, it's actually our first couple of anything on the show together. We've never had two guests at the same time before. This is uh, Leah's second time on God and Comics, so we're excited about that. And this is uh, Alexi's uh, 437th appearance uh, on God Comics. You know, this is, what is this, your fourth time? Is that what this it is? is my fourth time. Okay. So, all kinds of excitement there. So, you know, we had always said if we ever had a guest on three times, which is like in our wildest dreams, would that ever happen? We would let the guest do this or that. And now here's Alexi on his fourth time. We said, what could we possibly do to honor his fourth visit? And we decided we would turn over the recommendation to him. So, here it is, Alexi. Sergeant with uh, the Gotten Comics recommendation, make it a good one.
2: Thanks, Deacon Jonathan, and it's a huge honor to get to be the inaugural guest recommender for Gotten Comics. I'm gonna break the mold a little bit, but recommend something that I think will be absolutely of interest to Gotten Comics listeners. And I'm recommending a role-playing game. The game I'm recommending is Masks, a New Generation. It's a game that allows you to play as young superheroes finding your way in the big city. It's kind of inspired strongly by media like Young Justice, Team Titans, some of the younger X-Men teams, because all of your characters have superpowers and are teenagers and are figuring out what to do with their powers and their lives. Mm. Will they grow up to be paragons of the city? Will they fall and fail? Will they find ways to comfort and support each other in order to keep on the right path, fighting the good fight? Will they be corrupted by the forces of evil that besiege Halcyon City? Well, you have to play to find out. This game is powered by the apocalypse, meaning it draws mechanics from the apocalypse world engine, and all that means is that instead of heavily mechanical game like classic Dungeons & Dragons, this game has a strong storytelling component with Relatively few dice rolls and all of those mechanics are tied into the central story it's telling, which is the story of these young superheroes figuring out who they will be and how they will relate to their city. And I guess, Leah, do you want to say anything about masks since you've been playing in the campaign that I've been running?
3: I've been playing. Alexi and I are both running sessions of masks at Gen Con this year. Um, And I think I'll amplify his recommendation by issuing a warning. Uh, since Alexi started running masks for our group, some of whom had never played role-playing games before, our players have created an internal wiki, formed a spreadsheet of secrets and who they're known to, bought t-shirts designed off of possibly villainous uh, institutions in the game, and become a walking compendium of coinage facts. So, uh, play at your own risk. <laughs>
0: okay. I have great players. <laughs> Okay, well, I I have to tell you, most of my uh, understanding of teenagers has come from comic books, and, and now I work with teenagers, and it's been really surprising to find out just how few of them actually have superpowers, so... You know, I've been adjusting well, to that. <laughs> Playing masks might,
2: you know, help you kind of return to the field where you're most familiar with uh, teenagers because most of the teens in masks do have superpowers.
3: Aren't, aren't all the teenagers you work with uh, living channels of God's grace? Is there anything more super than that?
0: <laughs> that, is, that is a fair point. Um, and we, we do have a house system at, at my school, so at the very least, we're sort of vaguely Harry Potter esque. So, you know. <laughs> there's that okay well thank you for that recommendation
2: absolutely oh i should say that masks is designed by brendan conway and available uh, through magpie games so if you google magpie games you can find where to purchase uh, the pdf or a hard copy of the game Masks.
0: great great
1: and now a word from our sponsor
0: we take you now to a saloon in the old west there's a lot of noise People are playing cards and drinking. A tune is being played on the old playerless piano, all of which you would hear if we had a bigger budget for this show. But we don't, so, you know, use your imagination. Suddenly, the peace is broken by the entrance of Big Bart Airman, the leanest, meanest, most textually critical gun-toting hombre in the West.
1: What in tarnation is going on here? You people think you're having fun playing poker, yucking it up, having a good time. But I'm here to tell you, the good time's over. I'm the fastest for all this side of the Mississippi. I'm so fast with my six-shooter that I not only kill you, I make it seem as if you never even existed at
0: all. Oh, no, you don't. Nobody tells me what to do.
2: Easy there, friend. I've seen Big Bart do his thing before. He once busted up a room full of intellectual types who tried to outsmart him. By the time he was done, even their own mothers weren't entirely sure they'd ever been born.
0: He doesn't look so tough to me. How smart could he be? Heck, I've taken EFM. Draw. Bang!
2: I told him not to do that. Wait a minute. Who was I talking to again?
3: All right. Show's over.
2: What? It's Sheriff Annie Oakley-evangelist. She's a legend.
3: That's right. I'm the law around these parts, and I'm not about to let some hypercritical riffraff ruin my time with poor scholarship.
1: You're asking for it, lady. All it will take is a second for me to draw my weapon and completely rearrange the facts in this situation. Oh, you're
3: welcome to try it if you want. But my gun isn't loaded with ordinary bullets. My ammo is 100% pure TLC.
2: (gasps) You mean you're armed with the Living Church magazine?
3: That's right. News, commentary, book reviews, and popular culture— Featuring some of the most interesting writers and thinkers in the church today. It's rooted in the Anglican tradition, but covers a wide range of topics that are meant to reach Christians of all denominations and backgrounds, Catholics and evangelicals alike. You can't possibly afford that much theologically rich, glossy, and well presented truth.
0: Actually, at only $55 for a full year of 22 issues, or just
2: for digital access. It's a pretty affordable option for any truth-loving
1: sheriff on the go. No way. I call your bluff. Draw. (coughs) Uh, 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 Oh, she got me. Dead to rights. I'm not long for this world.
2: But you're not bleeding or anything. Actually, you look
3: pretty good. That's because I shot him with TLC's hard-hitting, high-quality content. The same anyone can find right now at www.livinchurch.org. At livingchurch.org, you can subscribe to the Living Church magazine or read their free covenant blog with daily content.
1: Actually, I'm feeling pretty good right now. In fact, I feel mighty enlightened. I think I might go to confession. And then maybe start a, a preaching mission. Thanks, Sheriff Oki, evangelist. Just doing my job, sir.
0: And scene. <laughs> that, uh, well, that was, uh, that you that guys need to come on every episode so we can <laughs> do more of that. Um, <laughs> and, I, you know, Father Matt, I, I was almost entirely certain of how you would sound as big Bart airmen and I was absolutely right that was exactly how
1: you sounded it was basically just um what's his name from Looney Tunes
0: oh, oh. yeah Yosemite Sam or something Yosemite yeah Sam. okay that works <laughs> so we're gonna move now in, something much more serious to something much more serious uh, our main conversation, which, of course, is about Avengers Infinity War. And uh, just as a note at the beginning as we get into this, I cannot guarantee there will be no spoilers. We will, we will try not to spoil things too much. But this is really the sort of film that it's almost impossible to say nothing about uh, that would spoil it. So if you want to stay pristine you should probably pause the podcast, go out, watch the film, come on back to it. And for crying out loud, it's a Marvel movie. How have you not seen it yet? Everybody's seen it. Okay. On that note, there was a lot of work that this movie had to do uh, in order to pull together all of the pieces of of, uh, what was going on in the various universes of these characters. But uh, in the background of that is this basic conflict that's taking place Uh, between really not just the Avengers, but most of these uh, high-level movie heroes of of the Marvel Universe, and Thanos, who has a mission to collect these Infinity Stones, put them together in this gauntlet, which will allow him to remake reality, all of which comes from uh, a story in the early 90s from uh, Marvel Comics, but told very differently in this film and with a different set of motivations. But I want to start by talking a little bit about the cosmology uh, of this film, and particularly about this Infinity Gauntlet. So the way that it's introduced into the storyline is essentially we're told that at the time of creation, there was nothing... And then uh, somehow these stones come to be that have control over particular aspects of reality. So there's one that controls time. There's one that controls uh, soul and so on and so forth. And uh, they don't really go much more in depth with it at least in that explanation beyond that. But I wonder what you all thought of that, because uh, it was, first of all, it was very interesting to me that that uh, we start with creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing, which is a pretty particular Christian doctrine, right? I mean, you know, uh, that this is not the creation that Thor would have been familiar with from uh, Norse mythology. But also just that there's this emphasis on these kind of, Powers that 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 control uh, how the world is put together, so that it's put together just so. And I don't know. I just thought it was an interesting thing to to maybe uh, explore a little bit.
1: We've seen in these films the Marvel Cinematic Universe trying to build a a, a universe like they do in the comics that, that 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 kind of hangs together and is coherent and. and, and and so I think any universe needs a creation story, right? And, and so you know I, th- I think it's it's sort of admirable and and, and and you know definitely part of the package that they that they go along with this. I'm not sure I have a lot of thoughts about the content uh, of that. I mean, it's it's curious. It's it you know it's uh, I, I always found the Marvel cosmology sort of like mind bogglingly. Uh, Um, complex. I mean, partly because they're trying to fit together all these very different perspectives by different writers. But um, I mean, I I will say about um, creation ex nihilo, I mean, in in, in so many ancient creation stories, you have the gods sort of um, doing battle with some primordial embodiment of, of, of chaos. From that creatures, you know, body, you know, constructing the universe. And I, I think that that idea of, of, of cosmic struggle definitely is, is very much a part of the comic book mythos. So it's interesting to me that they go with the more, you know, creation ex nihilo uh, kind of approach than that kind of cosmic battle, which seems so much a part of the, the Marvel mythos. But um, I don't know... I'll, uh, Alexi Lee what, what, what do you have to say about it any thoughts
3: I think one small thing is that when we see the stones they seem still even though they're there near the beginning much more created than creator that when we see them in the world of the film mm. they're inert unless wielded so they may be part of the story of how these things came to be and interact but they don't seem like they finish telling the story yeah, you know, I think the
2: creatio ex nihilo we see in Infinity War is a very kind of functional mythological backdrop for the story they want to tell in the movie. It's kind of a minimalist way of painting the origins of the universe. I like, of course, in Marvel Comics, the times when there's hints of a you know god closer to the god of classical theism or Christianity. I enjoyed when the Fantastic Four met God and he appeared to them as Jack Kirby, the artist who created the Fantastic Four but you know, in such a way that he's less plausibly just the way that the real God appears to the Fantastic Four given their own kind of origin stories within the fiction not that I expect a Jack Kirby cameo in Infinity War but we can always hope
0: well and that's interesting too because uh, you think about like I forget where I heard this maybe it was Tim Keller was talking about about this like how would the characters in you know Hamlet for instance how would they know Shakespeare and the only way would be is if Shakespeare somehow wrote himself into the play and so this is the metaphor he uses for what God does in, in Jesus writes himself into the into the play so to speak uh, so yeah, that's it's interesting a that fast- Kirby that. image yeah. of the
1: incarnation it's, it's a fascinating yeah. thing about it. Doesn't Dorothy Sayers write herself into her yes, uh, stories? Yes. Yes. And she also wrote about this image of the Trinity. Yeah, in
2: her book *The Mind of the Maker*, she talks yes. about a way of kind of thinking about God through the image of of the artist, right? And the image of the kind of the artist as the kind of creator on high, the artist as uh, a character incarnate, as it were, in the in the book, and the artist as the authorial voice that goes through the pages and she acknowledges that like all images of the trinity this one has its uses and its limits uh since the trinity is a mystery and won't be fully encapsulated by any image we can offer of it but as a writer myself i find it a kind of inspiring and interesting image Mm -hmm. while also seeing that you know it can't fully explain the mystery of the trinity to us
0: yeah And I wonder too, like, because of course the other great cosmology that we've gotten in the Marvel universe, cinematic universe so far, has been really the Doctor Strange uh, cosmology. And in some ways I feel like this is, I don't know if it's conflicting with it exactly, but it's just like it's not really the same and it's not really as, as well developed, which is sort of funny considering what a major character they make Doctor Strange in the film. But it's also, you know, so we've had three Avengers movies now, two that were by Joss Whedon, now this one from the, um, the, the two, uh, brothers. The Russo brothers. The Russo brothers, yeah. who uh, Previously
2: directed Captain America Winter Soldier and
0: Captain America Civil War. Civil War, War, which we talked about with with you, Alexi. So, you know, there's a different feel to it than the previous movies had, and I, you they probably just didn't think that hard about it because they had other things that they wanted that they wanted to do. But this is the sort of thing that I look at these movies, and immediately my brain starts going, <laughs> "What is going on in the background of this?" Anyway.
1: I'm amazed that they didn't explore the theological implications more in depth in this
0: film.
1: <laughs> so, I mean, didn't they know that we would be talking
0: about? Well, it's just, you know, it's such a, it's such a, what's, what's that called? Uh, is MacGuffin, is that the term for it? It's such a, like, you know, there's like nothing to it. We're like the infinity stones are just like, here's some stones. They yeah. do stuff. Okay. So anyway. <laughs> this is true to their comic book origins yeah. though, right? They're oh no, absolutely. Ultimate, it's like that in the comic uh, too. a <laughs> set
2: of MacGuffins that have to be collected for the plot
3: to advance.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
3: They made some interesting, distinct use of them in more the middle of the film, uh, when the Guardians run into Thanos the first time, and we see the Reality Stone kind of really do some more surrealist things. But I felt like near the end of the movie, uh, Thanos was wielding more of the Infinity Gauntlet, and its powers had become less interesting, or more punching things with
1: different lights going off, right? So so okay. So what what stones make up the Infinity Gauntlet? So there's a am only remembering the Reality Stone, Mind the, Stone, Soul the stone, mind stone, mind stone, the Mind Stone, Soul,
0: Space, Space Stone, and Time, yes. and the Power Space Stone. stone. Yeah. There we go. Mm-hmm. And Flint, <sighs> the Flint Stone. It's also good. Yeah. Thanks. That was the reaction I was going for. You can just you could just edit that out. Yeah. <laughs> so the cosmology in this film might not be exactly worked out as specifically as we might like to see it, but they they clearly have uh, an agenda in mind as far as what it is that they want to communicate. And the thing that they spend a, a tremendous amount of time on, at least when they're not blowing stuff up, is thanos and particularly trying to show us his motivations trying to help us to understand who he is and why he does what he what he does thanos is on this great quest to gather the infinity stones together to put them together in the gauntlet so that he can kill half of the population of the universe So, you know, Thanos wants to kill uh, half the people in the universe, but his reasoning for this is what's so fascinating. He wants to do it, not because he's an evil guy, but because he had grown up on a planet where the resources were scarce and there were too many people, and he saw that the universe was the same way, there are too many people, and... He wanted everybody to have a higher quality of life, and he realized that the only way to do that is if half of the people disappeared. So that's his motivation. And when I saw that, what clicked in for me was this movie has an incredibly pro life uh, message at its core. I don't know if that's what they intended it to be, but if Thanos is the villain and this is his motivation, this would be the opposite of what would usually be thought of as a pro-life worldview to say that, that life has intrinsic value. So I don't know what you guys, what you guys think about this, but I, I thought that was a, a fascinating kind of twist. And I thought I was the only person to, to have had this observation until I got home and saw that Matt Fradd had tweeted basically the same thing.
2: Yeah, I really appreciate what they did with Enos in this movie because he's the antagonist, and he's a frightening antagonist because he has crusade, right? And it's a Malthusian anti-natalist crusade, very
1: much opposed to the idea that life has inherent value. Yeah, I don't know, what, what the heck is a Malthusian anti-natalist? I'm glad you asked about <laughs> <laughs> Robert Malthus is the theorist
2: behind what I'm calling Malthusianism. And Malthus was a, a demographer, uh, and he was very interested in the questions of resources and populations. And he ended up coming up with concepts like, like the Malthusian trap and the Malthusian specter to do with overpopulation, when population outstrips the natural resources and the ability to, to feed it, the ability for people to lead in a good quality of life. Right? And so, people drawing on Malthus's ideas, people who described as influenced by Malthusianism are all about austerity, all about finding some way to limit the growth of the human population, in extreme cases, finding some way to destroy part of the human population out of this perceived danger of overpopulation. And so it leads to terrible real-world ideologies rooted in eugenics, rooted sometimes in genocide, Thanos' characterization in this movie is all the more frightening because it has these Malthusian overtones. You know, in the comic books, he's literally in love with a personification of death. And instead of that magical realist angle where there's, you know, a figure representing Lady Death that Thanos is wooing, we have Thanos as this uh, terrifying force opposed to the abundance of life itself on what he thinks are pragmatic grounds. And so he's, you know, in love with death in the sense that he's willing to uh, kill on a mass scale to defend the quality of life against the quantity of life. He's an antinatalist which means against birth in the sense that he sees birth as the enemy. He sees the growth of the population of sentient beings as only a danger, right? It's not an opportunity for people to learn to live with each other. It's just a danger of people living with too many of each other. And so, his whole quest is about correcting that
3: perceived problem. And I was really impressed by this because I walked into the theater a Thanos skeptic. I thought it was incredibly boring in the little credit singers we got. He reminded me of the dad in Stranger Things, just constantly parked in his recliner and just kind of in the background of all the stuff that's going on. I had trouble imagining a movie built around Thanos. Um, And I think Alex is absolutely right. He's a fascinating villain. Um, because you know, he's a villain, as all villains should, who really sees himself as the hero, but who really does have some heroic traits. You know, he's warmly appreciative of the heroes, including while they're fighting them. You know. He's never going after them viciously, individually. Um, he kind of gives them you know, appreciative nods when they do well. You know, he's selfless to an extent. You know, he's really not in this for himself or for any particular benefit to himself. It's never touched on directly in the film, but I, I could imagine this Thanos, you know, whose goal is to wipe out the half the universe, he's willing to even take that 50-50 chance on himself, though we don't really know for sure. And I think it's probably more accurate to say the movie implies that as the person making this choice he gets to just persists. But I find it very plausible he'd be willing to sacrifice his own life for this goal. And so what we really see in Thanos is a warning. You know, that it isn't enough to just do the right thing as we see it, to do the right thing with, you know, real virtues, um, like fortitude on our side. uh, We have to have a rightly formed conscience. And that's what Thanos lacks. He's got a number of heroic virtues. But conscience is absolutely wrong, and we make the same mistake when we don't have some kind of external check on our own sense of what the good is.
1: He has some similarities to another very vivid Villain in the recent Marvel film, uh, Killmonger from the Black Panther, who is a character in many ways that's sympathetic. That you know he he has this he has this cause that he's passionate about that is a real a problem that needs addressing. But he has this misguided uh, heroism that uh, causes him to make these kind of incredibly evil uh, choices that lead in a a, a destructive direction. I think it's sort of interesting because both Thanos and Killmonger, I I think are kind of like, well they serve as kind of like the shadow side of the the superheroes. It shows how our own attempt at being saviors and, and, and heroes can often take things off the rails and often goes in, in, in horrible directions. I mean, you know, some of the worst kind of evils of the last century, you know, are, are motivated by some sort of misguided morality or, or, or of some kind or, or crusade of some kind or another. And it, it, I mean, you see this playing throughout the, the Marvel films. I mean, Infinity War and Black Panther, but also kind of in the last Avenger, in one of the last Avenger films, The Age of Ultron, where Tony Stark, you know, kind of in, in, in this attempt to, to do something, you know, heroic, creates this monster, you know, uh, Ultron, who uh, has a similar anti-natalist <laughs> uh, sentiments as Thanos. So if...
2: Killmonger is the shadow self of Black Panther, who is Thanos a shadow of? Like, Is there a particular hero that he's in parallel with?
3: I do see a resemblance between him and another Marvel villain, um, Iron Man. I mean, is Iron Man a villain? Iron Man's
1: a villain? In Civil War. Um, <laughs> but
3: in, that, in that Iron Man and Thanos both present an inhumane answer to what they see as the problem of humanity, uh, where Thanos' answer is simply death. Um, that the only way that people can flourish is if there's fewer of them. But Iron Man in um, Age of Ultron also kind of faces the struggle of, you know, people have trouble living together, they don't know how to deal with outside threats, so I'll just make a big robot so that people won't have to be responsible for each other, and I won't have to be responsible for them anymore. This robot will be able to keep everyone safe and contained and, you know, I think it's that idea of containment that's common both to Iron Man and Thanos. That the way to deal with the the kind of riotous fecundity that can spill over, of, you know, human nature, of human life, is to, in some way, slow it down, box it in. You know, and what's really, if you want the, the light self, you know, instead of the shadow self to Thanos or Ultron, the opposite of all that is marital sex, which is always, like, a pledge of faith in the goodness of creation because of openness to life. Yeah, I think to see kind of pro themes
2: emerge in the Marvel Universe kind of in contrast to this anti-Natalism we've identified in some of the villainous or uh, terrible choices the characters make, I'd be really interested in the next phase of films delving more into uh, marriage and parenthood, right, the like possibilities of responsibly fostering life. I think we're getting a bit of a taste of that in the way that Tony Stark has become a surrogate father figure in Spider-Man, which is one of the most, like, unexpectedly heartwarming slash heart-rending dynamics in this movie, I'd say. We're we're seeing Tony Stark, this man who's kind of fled responsibility in one way or another through so much of his life, finally becoming somewhat responsible for Spider-Man, this young hero who also needs to as always with Spider-Man, learn lessons of responsibility.
0: When we start the inevitable band that the four of us are going to form together, can we call it? <laughs> can we call it Riotous Fecundity? Because that would be an excellent <laughs> band name. I, mean, I,
3: think, I think it's important to note that this movie starts, and it is the very one of the very first scenes right? I don't feel oh. bad with Iron Man and Pepper Potts talking about whether they want to have children. Right. I was um, just going to
2: say that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember having a dream that uh, she's pregnant. And you know who knows how prophetic that is, right? But yeah, I'd love to see some wow. of these characters, or other, like whichever ones are ultimately still on the table when, uh, when all all the dust settles, and you know, in, in later films, I suppose, I'd love to see some of these characters, you know, moving on as you know, parents or mentors or otherwise shepherds of the next generation. Since I think that's yeah. like perfect rebuttal
3: to the kind of, uh, Thanos imperative of uh, fighting against the. On rush of life. And if we're looking for rebuttals to Thanos, you know, while we wait for what's ultimately Avengers Infinity War Part 2 for all that they lied about the title, you know, I think I think we encounter Thanos in smaller forms every day. You know, the person who at the grocery store looks at a mom with her group of three kids and goes, you're done, right? You're not going to have another. No. Like, That's the voice of Ben is speaking. The voice that Mm -hmm. sees life itself as excess, Um, and so anyone who wants to assemble like the Avengers, like, should defend parents um, and speak up in favor of taking a chance on life.
0: Or the the experience (laughs) that I've had of of having two children with very high special needs, and having people say, "Well, you know, wouldn't it be great if there was some way to test for that so that you wouldn't Mm -hmm. have to, you know, risk bringing these De- defunct people into the world. Like, there's just this, you know, this this notion at the core of all that that the thing that makes a life a life is this very abstract notion of quality of life, which means right. very different things to different like, people. And this probably based on
2: the personal, uh, often self centered judgment of the one like making this. this ruling that other people's qualities of life are not sufficient, right? Whereas, you know, I, I think many people, regardless of ability, see their own lives as having some value, right? It's valuable to them. Mm-hmm. Right? And as Christians, we know that it's also valuable to God, and we shouldn't be so eager uh, to sit in the seat of judgment and condemn people as being invaluable or unworthy of life. Uh, certainly after history has shown us the great that sacrifices, but even on the interpersonal side, scale. It should be uh, us,
3: that we shouldn't be, you know, making the kind of Thanos-like uh, call in that, one of those moments. But I think, mm-hmm. again, sometimes the, the voice of Thanos sounds like the voice of responsibility to people, where, you know, mm-hmm. there's there's not always or only hatred of weakness,
1: there's fear of it or for it, where people mm-hmm. go, no, this person is
3: vulnerable, this person is alone, what if no one loves this person, then something that happens that because they're vulnerable as Christians, we know that no one is ultimately unloved and uncherished through God. And I think, you know, often because of, you know, the history of how we've treated people who are different, or are more vulnerable, people become tempted by the idea of, well, wouldn't it be better to remove them if, if we are capable of taking care of them, and, you know, that's Iron Man's temptation again to too. if we, we aren't big enough for the job, is there some way we can get rid of
0: the job? Well, the, the, I mean, the irony of Thanos, you know, as, as Leah pointed out, Thanos is a very selfless character in a lot of ways, the way he's presented in this film. Like, you know, he's willing to make sacrifices, and yet, ultimately, the thing that he's making sacrifices for is this very self-directed, self-oriented idea of this is what a good universe looks like. This is what a life that's worth living looks like and so i'm going to create the only universe that can that can have that and and of course the even deeper irony that you know has been pointed out by many of the critics i think of this film which is here you've got a guy who literally has been handed the power to reshape the universe and instead of reshaping the universe he just decides to kill everybody off, right? Like, you know, if his issue is really like everybody's quality of life is really bad because we don't have enough resources, well, you know, dummy, you've got a thing now that you can make a bunch of resources with. How about you do that?
2: This, I mean, this is a problem between <laughs> antinatalists generally, right? They're constrained by a lack of imagination. Right? <laughs> Here, uh, the options before them seem limited to only make the one terrible choice that must be made because they don't have the from imagination to find ways of living together.
0: Let, let's talk about the deaths for a second, without getting into who died. Of course, I think at this point, everybody knows that there are people who died. But without get, getting into the list of who died, does it in some way injure the heart of this film that is about the importance of life to know that anybody who dies in this film has a reasonable chance of not staying dead uh, because we know that all of these characters have films that are going to come out (laughs) in in, another year.
3: i was in an argument on Facebook about this with a friend who said, you know, he couldn't take deaths in this movie seriously for that reason, and not only couldn't take it seriously, but couldn't even imagine what it was like to feel like you were taking them seriously. Where would that come from, you know? And for me, the answer is because the characters take them seriously. No one in the Marvel Cinematic Universe knows the forthcoming movie schedule. Uh, none of them even know there's a new Avengers movie coming out after this, for all they know, this is the last one. And so, you know, there's really a beautifully shot sequence near the end of the film uh, about the weight of these deaths, and are you know, a testament to the really incredible cast they put together for these movies and you know, what they've done about the relationships that you don't have to believe these deaths are permanent, you just have to believe that the characters believe they are, and I think that it's profoundly
2: effective. Yeah, I think it in some ways has to do with just our way of interacting with fiction in general, too, right? In order to believe in a fictional death, we've already suspended our disbelief, and once we're in the universe of comic books, where we know that resurrections do happen sometimes, we can still be emotionally affected by Batman R.I.P. or the death of Superman, even if we know that DC will never permanently kill off these characters. And with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it's a little bit unexplored territory. Perhaps some characters will stay dead. We just have a strong sense that not every death will stick, but that doesn't mean in the meantime the deaths aren't real within the story, and if we allow ourselves to enter into the story, they don't really affect us on that story level.
3: And it's hard to imagine that the next Avengers movie will be or at least a good part of it, taking seriously the weight of these deaths in the world without the heroes we lost. You know, I don't think this is a franchise that's kind of doing a dramatic near-death for the sake of a water-cooler moment, and then it's going to roll it back quickly. I think, you know, it's going to be about what these deaths mean to have a, you know, and then whether they can be
1: out do You read the deaths in the comic books, and you know that, they're gonna, that there's always a way that they can come back. Death doesn't seem quite as permanent in in, in comic books. I mean, now you mentioned the death of Superman. I I think most people knew that Superman was coming back, but, you know, still, I mean, reading that story and seeing, you know, Superman's bloodied corpse in the arms of Lois Lane, you you have an emotional reaction to it. Just like uh, when they killed off uh, the ultimate Spider Man, you you knew that. Well, there's other universes with Peter Parker and Spider Man, and this wasn't. um, It's still it's still affecting. I don't know, or like um, the the scene in the Gospel of John, you know, at at Lazarus' tomb. Now Martha says, "You know, yeah, you know, I I know he'll rise again the last day, Mm -hmm. but you know, it 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 still sucks now. (laughs) I mean, Jesus." weeps too right it's not that
2: that
1: he's gonna bring him back
2: yeah (laughs) it's not that jesus you know thinks that the resurrection makes sorrow invalid per se right but you know he knows that it doesn't give it the last word even though we know
1: that there's that time stone in the infinity gauntlet (laughs) and they're just gonna roll the whole thing back and stop it i mean we don't need a part two, but it's going to be exciting to watch it unfold.
0: Right. You you all have made some really excellent points. Uh, and it's, it's a shame ultimately that they're wrong. (laughs) 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 No, I, no, I mean, I, I do, I do get what you're saying. And uh, you know, Here's the thing about Lazarus though. They didn't like kill Lazarus fifteen times in a row and then like every time he came. You know, like like I, I we've had this discussion on here before. Well, this yeah. is this is true. This is true. Um, twice as many times. Yeah, although, exactly. you know, I mean I was baptized, so I've already died once, so um it, it, was, it was very <laughs> horrible though. Except in mean, they Marvel,
1: they've died
0: several, several. Times. Well, yeah, and and the thing, you know, I always go back to that uh, short Max Landis uh, film from a few years ago, the, the, the Life and Death, is it the No, the Death and Resurrection of Superman, something like that. You can find it on YouTube. It's it's a great little yeah, film. Know, it's it, I mean, it, the language is incredibly foul in it. Just to warn you before you you it's go searching for forever. it, but, but it makes the point that the Death and Resurrection of Superman ended up not killing killing death. Killing death. And I, I think so that... that had no more I think there's a valid part. point to be made there. I mean, not that there hadn't been deaths in comics before that had been undone, you know, thinking sort of famously of like Jean Grey or something like that, but but just now it's almost like a reflex that these characters just die and come back. And there, there does come a point where you have to... I mean, th- this is one of the things that I thought about as a difference between Joss Whedon and, and the Russo brothers doing this, because... Whatever else one can say about Joss Whedon, uh, when he kills people, they tend to stay dead for the most they part. To, doesn't always? Buffy doesn't always? Twice but... Over
3: the of and I think that's actually, should give you some hope out what this would be, <laughs> because both times Buffy came back to life, you know, the fact of her death altered her relationships both with the world and with other characters. Um, and I don't see any reason to assume before the next movie comes out that death won't be treated as though it has serious stakes, even though they may be slightly different stakes than the
0: ones we're used to. Okay. Well, and it didn't, I mean, you know, I still enjoyed it for what it was. Like, I knew what it was going to be, so I wasn't that surprised.
1: I think the bigger issue is sitting through, like, a three-hour movie and then being like, what? There's a
0: cliffhanger? You know? Yeah, and, if you didn't know going in that, that you were basically going to the Empire Strikes Back, you were, like... I didn't feel like I did that going in. Really? Yeah. Okay. I was <laughs> really like I wasn't sure how they were going to handle it. I, I ended up appreciating
2: the way they structured the film because I was worried from the trailers it might be basically entirely the kind of epic strum and drum, epic storm and stress of the final battle in Wakanda. But in fact, the movie spent a lot of time letting us see interesting groupings of characters bouncing off each other, and then ended on a like big cliffhanger note, uh, which I thought. Works pretty well, like
1: you know, it worked in Empire Strikes Back, and I think it worked here, and I'm very excited to see how things get resolved. I'll tell you, I'm really hoping that we hear Captain America say "Avengers Assemble" before
0: mm-hmm. this thing is done. Do we want to talk at all about the the Jesus throwaway line, or? Sure, I, can, I, I think I have a pithy observation I can spin off of it. So there's that one line in the film where um, uh, we'll go ahead and spoil that joke. Uh, Star Lord, what what is? Somebody set it up for me. Dr.
2: Strange says, who do you serve? Mm-hmm. And where so Lord's like, am I supposed to say Jesus or something? Right. And of course the answer is yes, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, everyone needs Jesus, but I think Star Lord in a particular way needs the example of Jesus, since Jesus is the servant leader par excellence, right? Jesus uh, serves his disciples and washes their feet, right? And shows them how to lead with humility, and with respect for those who are following you. And Starler could do to gain some humility and respect, right? And could uh, pick up ways of leading that are not based in arrogance and bravado, but based in humility and uh, having a compassionate heart. Plus, I think
1: this implies interesting things about space missionaries. Since uh, Starler hasn't spent
3: a lot of time on Earth, he's been mostly exposed to Earth music, so perhaps he's intuited the gospel message primarily from... Out Cash. But otherwise, perhaps
0: like the promise of space Jesuits can be fulfilled. I I have a a sneaking suspicion that many of you who are listening uh, actually did go ahead and see uh, Avengers Infinity War, and you probably have thoughts about it too, and we'd love to hear them, and you can share them with us through our social media. We are on Facebook at facebook.com/slash god and comics, or you can tweet at us. We are on Twitter at God and comics. But for now, we're going to move on to our final segment: this or that. This or that. This or that. Come on, everybody, let's this or that. Huh? First one goes to Father Matt. Joel Osteen or TD Jakes? I can't say I'm terribly familiar with the work of either man. TD Jakes, I, I, I I've, I've not
1: really, I've, I've never really heard him preach. I have heard Joel Osteen preach, and, and there's, there wasn't a lot to recommend it as far as uh, theological content or scriptural content. T.D. Jakes, I mean, does he believe in the Trinity?
0: Uh, that's a good question. I'm not sure that he does. Maybe he does. I don't want to you know, besmirch him. I think, he, I think he's,
1: he's, he's part of a, a Pentecostal group that's a little fuzzy on the Trinity. That being said, I'm going to say TD Jakes, uh, if only because, from what I understand, he, 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 he's done a lot to power a lot of folks in the African American community. He's a really positive influence uh, for a lot of folks.
0: Uh, Leah, capitalism or socialism? <laughs> Don't overthink it. Oh, man. False dichotomies, everybody. <laughs> That's neither, right. neither are great. Um, I'm going to pick capitalism
3: on the grounds that it doesn't oversell itself as um, a moral system, um, and like wears its flaws more openly on its sleeve and encourages us to look beyond it.
0: Okay, mm. interesting. Capitalism doesn't oversell itself. That in and of itself so is it interesting. Itself exactly
3: the market clearing
0: price. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Okay, Alexei. Much Ado About Nothing, or A Midsummer Night's Dream? Ah, you have
2: cleft my heart in twain. Um, (laughs) Much Ado About Nothing. I love both of these Shakespearean comedies, but Much Ado About Nothing has a genuinely healthy relationship at its heart. Ironic as that might be to say, since the protagonists are tricked into loving each other, but I think Benedict and Beatrice really do come as close as any Shakespearean couple to being a good example of you know, responsible uh, married love by the time they're united at the end of the play, whereas I still have a problem in Midsummer Night's Dream with Demetrius being under the influence of the
3: fairy love juice when he likes his trough to Helena. He has this problem because he played Demetrius. He
0: mm-hmm. oh. takes his side. Well, let me ask you this bonus, since you picked Much Ado About Nothing. Uh, Kenneth Branagh, Much Ado About Nothing, or Joss Whedon, Much Ado About Nothing? I pick Kenneth Branagh in the end it's very hard
2: to beat Branagh and Thompson's chemistry as Benedict and Beatrice I will, I'll will say for the Wheaton that there are some very good performances and Nathan Fillion's
0: Dogberry is much preferable to McLean's Dogberry oh come on <laughs> like, it
2: kind of bubbles through all the lines and much of the humor of Dogberry
0: oh. is in the
2: humorous malapropisms like
0: Bedouk but- didn't you ever wonder no, what no. It would happen if Beetlejuice was in that play? No, not really. No, no. no? Okay. A uh, thousand points to Alexi. Okay. Um. points to me. Yes. And for some reason, a talking fish. I don't know why. It's just... It's what happened. Okay, Father Matt. Mary, Queen of Scots, or Mary, Queen of Heaven? Well, I mean, Mary, Queen of Heaven. Let's, uh, amen. Amen. <laughs> then let's, let's, then I mean, you know, Mary, Queen of Scots. Uh, I'm sure
1: she's got her qualities, but
0: she's not the mother of God. Um, <laughs> yeah. You need to ask. Yeah. It's a fair point. Leah, Dominicans or Franciscans? Oh, I picked Dominican. So, I figured you picked Dominican. By myself, I will tell a joke I heard the Dominican tell about the Franciscans, <laughs> uh, which he was
3: preaching on Genesis, and points out you know that Adam named you know all the creatures in the garden and, and stewardship over them. He goes, but Adam was lonely, and by this we know that man is not naturally Franciscan. <laughs>
0: um we we have some friends uh Francis, and we have some Dominican sisters down here, a couple of whom work at my school and one one who works at the ordinary at chancery and i I've gotten her to start listening to God in Comics so shout out to Sister Amada Veritas if you're listening right now um, you know that question was for you Alexi Art Spiegelman or i'm not sure exactly how to say her name but because um, i've I've just seen it written and not heard it out loud, but Marjane Satrapi. Is that how you say it? It's a Can I get a mulligan?
2: I'm afraid I
3: haven't read the relevant materials. Uh, mouse and Persepolis. I'm aware.
0: Yeah. You haven't read either one? Sorry. Oh. You've got to become a more literate comic book fan. Leah, have you read... Uh... I've read both. Oh, well, what would your answer be to that, then? I mean, they're both very
3: good, to be clear. I prefer uh, Margin's of Trappy because, you know, you know, I really love her memoir. I think she, you know, tells, you know, does a terrific job blending the everyday with the political. And also because when I saw the film adaptation of her memoir, which is very true to her art, yes, um, I was just weeping in the first few scenes of uh, just as you watch her family looking forward to the revolution as kind of left leaning communists um, because they see you know, overthrowing the Shah as a real opportunity for Iran, and I just like. In the theater bawling going like they are wrong it's <laughs> not going to work. Um, yeah, I think I think Spiegelman does an incredible job with mouse uh, finding a way to tell the story of the Holocaust like through this heightened uh, storytelling with the, the cats and the mice. Um, but yeah, I think there's just a, a simple frankness to trappy that I love:
0: I agree, I agree. Father Matt, Bert Bacharach or Bert and Ernie. Bert and Ernie, he's
1: sort of a jerk, isn't he? um, Everybody's a jerk. He's just, you know, a little high strung. Well, everybody knows Ernie's the lovable one. Bert Bacharach, on the other hand, has produced some. uh, (laughs) Leah
0: seems very offended by your your comment there. There's nothing wrong
3: with wanting things to be orderly.
0: (laughs) Okay!
2: I can't relax! <laughs> with
3: a, with
1: a rubber ducky there? <laughs> Sitting next to um, the computer Leah. <laughs> but, anyway, Burt, Burt Backrack, like I said, has produced some uh, beautiful pop music, and, and uh, uh, my, my, uh, I'm especially a fan of his collaboration with Elvis Costello and uh, painted from memory. So I'm gonna go
0: with Burt Backrack. Alexi, Superheroes or Muppets?
2: This one's easy for me. Superheroes.
0: I'll give you 357 points for that answer. Yeah, um, Thanks but, uh, to But you lose 356 of them for having not read Persepolis. So. That's fair. You know. Um, okay. And uh, finally, uh, Leah coughing or sneezing?
3: Well, based on my own uh, revealed preferences, coughing, since I do it consistently. Um, I, when I get a cough, I don't shake it for about two months. Um, I frighten people. And it only once was walking pneumonia, but like it's, it's frightened people as though it were every time. But on the plus side, in high school, I won the part of the Lorax in a school play for the elementary schoolers on the basis of my coughing, which was not acting. Um, it was just kind of like held in, except during the bits where I needed to do it, um, and, you know, I think made people environmentalists.
0: Alexi and Leah, it's, it's been wonderful to have you both on the, the show at the same time.
3: We've been having a great time talking to you guys.
0: Uh, do, do you guys have anything that you would like to plug before we uh, close out?
2: Absolutely. Folks can find my writing at alexisargent.com or follow me on Twitter at alexisargent. If anyone's coming to Gen Con, the big gaming convention in Indianapolis this year, you can sign up to be in a session of Masks, the role-playing game that I am running. Shoot me a message via my website or Twitter, and I can tell you which sessions are the ones I'm GMing.
3: And I'll be at Gen Con, and you can fight me, because I'll be a monster in a live-action dungeon crawl. Outside of fighting me... You can read my books and then fight me uh, if you disagree with them or live them out if you like them. And that's arriving at amen on my conversion to Catholicism and building the Benedict option out this summer on ways to build thicker Christian community, which is always a review to Thanos. Uh, my website is lealabresco.com and my Twitter handle is lealabresco.
0: Great. And we'll put links to all of that stuff on, on our uh, show page. As well. Well, that's going to be it for our show today. Be sure to check out our show page at God and comics.com where you can listen to the show again. And as I said, you can see links to uh, the stuff that Leah and Alexi were just talking about, and to a bunch of the other rad stuff that we talked about today. You can also subscribe to God and Comics through iTunes. And while you're on iTunes, please leave us a rating or a review. Please, please leave us a rating or a review. It helps other people find the show. Our theme music, which you are hopefully banging your head to right now, is by Father Paul Wheatley, who is, as we speak, in Germany. That's it. No joke this time. He really is in Germany, or so the Russians would have us believe. Until next time, I'm Deacon Jonathan Michikin. I'm Father Matt Stromberg. And we'll see ya.
1: I'm I'm at (laughs) (laughs) Disassembled!